Where are you cowboys and cowgirls at? Hey everybody, this is Dan Hillenbrand and welcome to Modern Cowboy, the podcast for the cowboy lifestyles and businesses around the world. I'm glad you're here, so sit back in your saddle and prepare to be inspired, motivated, educated, and entertained as I interview a new guest each week that embodies the modern cowboy. like to give a shout out to a company here before we get started with our guest. It's Nine Lazy Three Knives, Mike Gibson over there. I just received my new folding knife called the One Arm Bandit. His pocket knives are just, they're just so, so cool. They're so cool that Miranda Lambert had one made, uh, the drummer for Shinedown had one made, and the super, super cowboy himself, Adele Risby had one made and so when dale says uh, you got to get one of these knives or you ain't no cowboy i had to get one anyway i just got mine it's super cool i'm actually going to post a video of it today on instagram so be sure and check that out and check them out too nine lazy three knives on instagram very cool products hello everybody and welcome to the modern cowboy podcast i'm really excited today to have uh a guest on Josh Olszewski. Uh, he's a saddle maker. Um, the seven O salary is his company and just to look forward to talking to him and hearing about how he got started and uh, how he got to where he's at. So Josh, welcome to the modern cowboy podcast. Thank you, Dan. It's uh it's an honor to be here and a pleasure. Uh, love your podcast. Love what you're doing with it. So uh, I'm just, I'm um, stoked to be on. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm, thanks for coming on. I, I really appreciate you agreeing to come on and, and do this. Now, we we actually got connected through uh, another guy, Tristan at uh, uh, Myers. Uh, Myers Company. Yeah, mm-hmm. Myers Company. Yeah, a horse trainer up there, and he he connected us, and then I started seeing your work on on Instagram and everything. And and I think the the thing that's really you know drew me to your work. One of the things is just. I mean, your attention to detail and just the, the, the carving you do, the leather carving you do in your saddles, it's just uh, amazing. I mean, it's just beyond art. Um, and uh, we talked a few times, too, before, and I just, you know, just really, really kind of connected. And uh, so I'm just excited to have you on and just, uh, you know, give us a little insight into, you know, what you do and, and how you got started. I'll tell you, I, uh, I was... Uh actually kind of stumbled into um to what i'm doing now through uh through the hard road really because i'm uh i'm totally self-taught as far as hands-on uh hands-on teaching goes obviously you learn through osmosis and things like that over the years you know watching what other people do but as a kid i just grew up on a you know 40 acre dirt farm ranch uh, uh my dad did a bunch of everything to you know, make ends meet. And, uh, we never really had money for tack or anything else. So I kind of fell into it through just trying to repair old stuff and, uh, and make stuff work. And, uh, then I started, started repairing old saddles, uh, started doing that a bunch and, uh, tearing them down, putting them back together. And I loved it. I had a, even as a kid, I had a, um, very much, a creative mind um i think i tried to start about 12 businesses by the time i was 12 (laughs) but uh 
I was I was always very entrepreneurial, like entrepreneurial, um, in my disposition, and uh, and I was very kind of good at creating in my mind, but I was never like you know super artistic as far as drawing and stuff like that. However, um, that did run through my family. I mean, my my granddad, uh, he was an amazing watercolor artist, and uh, he, he's in the New York Times as a young man doing watercolor artists of Disney characters. And, uh, then my dad, uh, he's, you know, he's talented at everything, pencil, brush. Uh, I mean, he made a living a lot of years doing, uh, murals and high end art. So, uh, that, that was definitely in the family, but I never really considered myself the artist in the family, but I always knew I was a creator. And that's really how, that's really how it all started for me because I have a, uh, I have two passions in life, pretty much, uh, the West and the, uh, history and heritage of the West and, and creation. Those are my two real passions in this life, uh, aside from, you know, uh, fly fishing, which I haven't done too much of that lately, but, uh, <laughs> uh, I was born and raised in Utah. Um, and my family goes back to, uh, this country's heritage for a long, long time on one side, and on the other side, we uh, we got over here from Germany. So I got a bunch of uh, hot-blooded uh, races running through me. <laughs> so when when you were when you were a kid, then I mean, obviously there was talent, you know, artistic talent in the family. But did you draw as a kid at all, or did that not come to later? I did. I was. I did not come till later. I never, I always saw my dad drawing in my, and I was always afraid to even pick up a pencil. So I was like, you know what? Wow. Uh, that's gotta be, you know, impossible. I mean, that's some sort of, you know, God given gift. But I, and so I really never even attempted it. Um, and, and so I always would create in other ways. By the time I actually did pick up a pencil, which was not until probably, uh, my late teens, um, I was, uh, handicapped by the idea that I was not, uh, I had no ability, which really had never tried. That's what it came down to. And, uh, and then, you know, I started to fall in love with it and realized that, you know, I was an artist at heart and, uh, and a creator. And, uh, then I really started to become obsessed with it. You know, it, it became an obsession in a lot of ways and it still, you know, still is. So. So when did you make your first saddle? I was about 17 years old, 16 or 17. I'm sorry. Did you make that to sell or I did you just make it for yourself? I, met, I did. I made it to sell. I made it for a good buddy of mine that was a, uh, a reigning trainer uh, uh, out in Utah. And uh, he's like, you know, I can see what you can do. I bet you can build one from scratch. And I'm like, eh, not really. Uh, you know, I look at a lot of guys' work and and that, you know, I, I don't think I could do that without learning from somebody. And he's like, no, no, give it a try. I'll pay you for materials. And so I tried it and, uh, I, I was pretty, I'm still pretty happy with that first one, uh, to this day, you know? Uh, so, and he still rides it and he still, he still loves it. And I knew right then that I was hooked. Like there was no way to get out. Yeah. that That's, that's so awesome. You know, and, and it, it's, I've always wanted to make things out of leather ever since I was a kid. Uh, I mean, my grandfather gave me this buckskin jacket one time and 
you know, you do these things as kids, at least I used to weird. And I cut the thing up. Don't, don't even ask me why. But that being said, I've fiddled around with leather. I've, I've made a few little things. Some things look okay. Um, I've actually had bought a tree before was going to try to get some, learn how to make a saddle. But it just, you know, it, it's, never, it's never happened. Um, I don't know that it, it, maybe it will happen someday. I don't know. You know, maybe you'll open a saddle school. But, uh, <laughs> um, but I just think, I think it's such a, a, a you know, an, an amazing art and, and just such a great talent. When, when I look at your stuff, do you, do you draw the, the designs, the flowers, the patterns and stuff yourself? Uh, how does that come about? Uh, absolutely. Every, uh, one thing I try to do that's pretty hard, hard and fast rule for me is I, I try never to, uh, to recreate the same piece again. Yeah. I mean, there are certain things that I use the same pattern on, but those are, those are more production line items. But when it comes to saddles and things like that, uh, it's really an interpretation of what the, what the client is hoping to see. And a lot of times people will come to me and they'll say, you know, I love what you're doing here and here, and this is kind of what I'm hoping for. And then they leave me to do do my work, um, and then from there I draw it out. I draw it out on paper, um, and and then from the paper you transfer that over to the leather, and then you carve it into there. There are a lot of artists out there, especially today, that do direct direct artwork on the leather, um, and that's never really been my thing. But there are a lot of really good artists out there that can do that. But I still use paper and pencil and then transfer from there. And uh, that's kind of my medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in, in terms of the tooling and stuff, was uh, um, of course, I mean, you know, with time and, and practice, you get better. But how, how soon or how early on did you start doing detailed tooled saddles or tooling? Well, I did. I attempted, um, I would say for the first five years, I attempted to do uh, a lot more than I was capable of doing. And, uh, I'll tell you the biggest, uh, uh, the biggest change that happened for me in my work was when I said, uh, I don't really care what anybody else thinks about my work because for a lot of years I would try to, uh, compare myself with other makers. Um, Mm -hmm. I'd look at their work and I'd tear myself down and I'd try to imitate what they were doing. And, um, my work was very subpar. I would, I would, I would definitely say that was some of my worst work during those times. Um, and I got to the point where I hated what I was doing because, uh, I was never really doing, uh, I was never really learning to embrace my own creativity because I was trying to imitate somebody else. And, uh, I would say maybe 10 years ago, I, I said, you know, forget this. I'm just going to go out and start doing what I do. And, if it does, nobody wants to buy it. That's fine, but at least I'll be happy with what I'm creating. And uh, from there, my style kind of started to grow, and uh, I definitely had a uh, a burst on the scene kind of moment where I was like, "All right, I'm kind of figuring this out, and uh, it's starting to come alive," you know. And uh, and that's I would say I would say my my very first uh, saddle that was like a full floral that I'm that I'm happy that it's out there with my mark on it probably was not any more than seven years ago seven eight years ago um i i I build a lot of uh cowboy rigs that are used a lot so they end up being a lot of rough out materials and things like that um and sometimes they don't get as much tooling on them but i actually 
I actually am obsessed with the construction as much as I am the artwork. Um, I have a very unique way of building saddles that's different from 95% of the rest of the makers out there. Um, and uh, and I've, I've kind of developed it all through uh, trial and error and also through um, imitating what they used to do 100 years ago in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so your trees, do you, do you build your trees or do you buy them or how does that work? I, I buy, I buy my trees. Um, uh, my, one of my goals is definitely to have a, a full service shop where I can, where I can do everything in house. Uh, uh-huh. that would be, that would be preferable, but there's not a lot of time or money. in you know, in that you kind of, uh, especially as a, two or three man shop or a one man shop, wherever you're at there, you know, whereas for me, I'm doing most of all the work actually. So, uh, it's pretty difficult to get to that point. But, uh, after I have the tree, um, most builders will, uh, will then put their seed in because the, the tree has, you know, that big opening in the center between the two bars. And that's where you build your tree. I mean, build your seat. Uh, and they'll start that out with a piece of tin. Um, I, I use all leather. There's no tin in my saddles. Uh, I hand shape and carve the seat from several layers of leather that, uh, to create the overall seat. And, um, I also have a very different outlook on what a seat should look like. Um, I remember back in the day I was building, I was tearing apart and rebuilding stock saddles, Australian stock saddles. Mm-hmm. And, um, I thought, geez, these seats are, they're way more comfortable and far superior to uh, the Western, you know, saddles that everyone's riding in now. Um, and then I also did a bunch of repair on English saddles too. And uh, and I just thought there's got to be a better way to do it. Um, the Western saddle that we have now came from two things primarily: the uh, cavalry McClellan saddle that the Army used, right, and the the Mexican saddle, they kind of hybrid together and, and made a working saddle. Um, now that's, I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about West of Texas here, you know, Texas kind of had its own thing there too, that, um, they kind of built as far as a saddle goes. I mean, if you've ever seen a bear trap saddle, you'll know that, you know, there's that, and you would never have seen that out West. And what a bear trap was, it was a saddle that had a fork on it that, literally had arms that came around your legs that would hold you in from, uh, keeping your butt getting bugged off. Oh man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll send you a picture after this podcast there. They were nuts. But anyway, the, the point of it is, is they, the, many of the seats on saddles today are built, uh, in a way that is not ergonomical to the human body. Um, they're very flat where you sit down. And so it stretches you a long ways at the hips and, if you look at most saddles used today, you'll see wear marks where your tail bones or pin bones are, mm-hmm. um, but there's no wear anywhere else. So it'll be like just those two marked areas because the seat is not shaped for the pelvic uh, anatomy that you're right. using. And so I started reshaping seats and I was like, well, this is how I'm going to do it. And I think it's way better. And um, from that point on, I kind of made a shift out of, uh, out of being, uh, in the, in the club, I guess you would say. Um, and I started just kind of doing my own thing and 
most people who ride my saddles, in fact, I would say 100%, I've never heard anything different than that, will all say that it's a different experience, that, you know, most comfortable seat they've ever sat in because of that. And for the life of me, I can't understand what the thought process is between many of the saddles that are built and why they are built the way they are. I just know that for me, um, they have to make sense. And so I think I have advantages in that area because of the fact that I was not tutored by somebody that was already doing it because I had to work through it um, and be self-taught the way I was kind of allowed me to, uh, I feel like come up with a product that has a, a couple of, uh, advantages to it as far as being um being sensible to the human body as well as the horse's body right right and and when i'm looking at i'm looking at one of them right now one of the things i like about these these working saddles and i don't know if that's a a wade tree or not um but it's one you post and it's all rough out i I have a real affinity for rough out saddles too mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. looking at the seat and again and, and i'm no saddle expert uh i've owned a lot of saddles i've, I've got uh, a pretty cool old antique saddle and but looking at that saddle and you've got your hand uh in the, in the middle of the seat it just looks like um there's a kind of a rise in the center seat area and then mm-hmm. and then it looks like you know there's a nice uh i don't know what you call it kind of pocket pocket, pocket yeah. yeah there you go yeah yeah, that, yeah. that's what i'm kind of seeing. yeah well you yeah that's what you're going for you're going for a pocket that draws your body into that pocket and if that pocket's built correctly over the tree it will put you over the balance of the back of the horse so it, it's assisting you in maintaining good balance in the tree which then will keep you from doing a lot of other bad things when you're riding um you know most riders aren't pros and so they're usually out of balance and then they usually soar up their horse and then they usually blame the horse or something else. So, right. um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make equipment that, uh, you know, will give you the best advantage to staying in balance and being comfortable while you're doing it. Cause you know, if you're not comfortable. You're, you're throwing yourself back against the cannel or you're, you know, mm-hmm. your weight's not where it should be. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, every, everything needs to, um, needs to grow in life and a lot of things in the in that industry have remained the same for 150 years right so you know it's uh it's a battle for sure yeah yeah but um it's so it's so interesting and and it's so it's just so cool you know that just to see you know innovation like that in uh, to the old west and i'm looking at the rigging now so Let's, let's just talk a little bit about for people that may not know a lot about saddles or building saddles. We talked about the tree and that's basically, is that the, basically the foundation of a saddle? Absolutely. Absolutely. And a good tree will be made out of wood, will be uh-huh. made out of hardwood and covered in rawhide or, or Kevlar. Um, a wood tree covered in Kevlar is about the toughest thing you can buy on planet earth. Um, and uh, so, but not many people do that. So, most good trees are, are covered in rawhide and uh, built out of wood. Uh, but a lot of saddles you buy off the shelf come with um, some sort of a plastic tree, whether it's fiberglass or something like that. And those are hollow inside. so they And they're also coming out of a mold, so they don't have near the craftsmanship in it for, uh, for the horse's back. That's your main foundation is what I was going to say. That is what you're basing everything off of. 
Right. And then you, the first thing you do is you, you, you put the seed in it for the first thing, correct? Absolutely. Put your seed in, shape that up and form it in. That's the very first step. Yeah. And, and then in terms of the, the gullet width, I mean, it's, a, it's a, just complete variances with horses, uh, you know, right. just like right. shoes and clothes and everything else. And it's like, you know, you Absolutely. can go, you can go to, you know, Ross or, you know, TJ Maxx or wherever and, and buy, you know, shoes off the rack and, and they're basically all kind of the same shoe. They're going to really kind of mostly fit the same, uh, you know, a nine M or, a, right. you know, right. but with, with, with yep. this again, yep. you're, you've got to really fit it to the horse. It's, it's like getting a, you know, a custom pair of shoes made for your feet too. Correct. Absolutely. That's a very good analogy. Um, there is one thing you can do if you're, I mean, if you're buying a lot of stock that's similar in size, you'll, you'll be able to create a saddle that is, um, pretty, pretty versatile. Um, but along the lines of a custom pair of shoes, I'm painting a picture here. A lot of people are using even things like treeless saddles and, um, adjustable saddles and things like that. These, uh, the problem with those are if you can imagine wearing a pair of sandals doing a hard day's work, like, I don't know, wherever those don't have any bridge support. So mm -hmm. like they don't have a shank or anything like a pair of boots would have and your feet get really sore because every, every movement you make kind of that, that shoe kind of moves with it and doesn't ever give you a place of support. Right. Um, and that's, a, that's the that same thing. The same principle, um, applies to horses back. We do not want that tree to move with every muscle movement. We want to give it a place of support that most of the time gives you uh, even balance and distri distributes that way evenly throughout the back. So, right. you know, actually what those treeless saddles do is they fatigue the horse's back because it moves with all of the muscles. So if you had fingers and you pressed on every muscle that moved, mm -hmm. Uh, you'd get very sore over time. So there's a lot of misconceptions as far as all that goes. But as far as fitting a horse goes, if people if people have uh, a group of horses, you can usually fit a tree that will that will work for a bunch of them. Of course, if you have one that's you know just an oddball, you're going to have an issue there. Right. But I, we use a pretty uh, advanced measuring system that was created by an Australian guy and it's a card profiling system. And a lot of the tree makers today, uh, use this profiling system as well. So you can just take that data and then give the data to them and they can build a tree according to that data. So we have come a long ways as far as how we can fit a horse's back on a wood, on a wood tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and then the, the skirting on it too. I mean, just looking at the skirting on a lot of these working saddles, the, the skirting, um, hopefully I'm saying that right. Uh, it's, it's, it's smaller, you know, it doesn't like drape over the sides. Right. Right. Um, right. And, and the idea behind that is just be lighter and give the horse more freedom of movement. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. All that stuff you're, you're dealing with, um, you're dealing with people that are riding for upwards of 15, 16 hours a day on a bad day, you know? So, right. um, weight is an issue. And so is the overall shape. Um, for <clears throat> soaring up the horse and giving him, you know, good movement and things like that. Um, what we try to do with the skirts is we're trying to give, um, trying to dis uh, give, make that weight distributed a little even more evenly through a wider area. But we also are trying to keep it small enough so that it's not encroaching into the horse's loins and some of those other areas. So there's a fine balance there, but mm -hmm. there's also, 
Um, there's also a, uh, a lot of things about the horse's body that come into play. If you say have a horse as a short back, um, you know, it's not going to really matter. Let's say you have a short bagged horse and you're a big guy and you need a 16 and a half, 17 inch seat. You're already kind of messing up because, you know, it doesn't, you're putting a big saddle on a small horse. It's not going to be that comfortable ever for that horse. Right. So there are, there are certain things you can't fix about, you know, certain things, but we try to do the best we can to take into consideration the rider and what horses they're using him on and make as, uh, as profitable for them as we can, uh, in every way, shape and form. I can build saddles that come out at 30 pounds with stirrups on them for working rigs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because a lot of saddles, um, I know a lot of team roping saddles, they weigh like 40, 42 pounds, something like that. It seems like. Right, right, right. Yeah, we can, uh, I barely, I do a lot of work for veterans, and I barely built a, a saddle for the Semper Fi Fund um, for a, a vet there. Um, and we came out with stirrups at 29 pounds. Man. And that's a full working rig uh, he uses all the time on a ranch and, and, uh, and so it's definitely, uh, we can definitely do it. It just takes the right, uh, the right understanding of what you're working with. Yeah. For years, FSR Cattle Company has been known for their premium roping cattle, used and endorsed by multiple world champions and NFR qualifiers. But did you know that FSR is also the home of quality rope horses for all levels, from professional team roping to the novice level? A trip to Weatherford, Texas and to the FSR headquarters will give you a variety of horses to choose from. FSR Cattle Company will arrange transport for your new horse back home and a free ride back to the airport for you. For your convenience, we accept credit cards for all horses found at FSR. We strongly believe in matching team ropers with horses they can work and win with. So when you back in the box on a horse you found at FSR Cattle Company, you know you're mounted to win. Visit us online at fsrcattlecompany.com or in the office at 817-598-1222 and let us help find your next winner. Again, that's fsrcattlecompany.com. And so then, you know, once you have the, uh, of course, you use like fleece lining, um, you know, mm-hmm. under, under part of the saddle, um, so, and, and you got the, you know, your, your, the, the way this saddle sits on the horse and everything all shaped out and you got that on there. How much in terms of like saddle pads, blankets, um, you know, what do you, what do you look at in terms of that, you know, of, of, you know, making sure that that saddle still going to fit right. You know, if someone like over right. pads that are right. using wrong pads or just right. give us an idea. Mm-hmm. That's a, that can be a, a absolutely a very a detrimental thing to do is to over pad. Um, if you have a good saddle, let's assume, let's use the basis here that you have a good saddle that uh, it has been crafted correctly and it fits your horse. Um, technically, you don't even need a pad if, it, if that's the case. If you have good sheepskin on there and, you know, mm-hmm. you really don't even need a pad. So um, you want to put maybe a nice wool pad on there or something like that that will, uh, that will pad them but not take, uh, not take a bunch of the advantages away of the saddle that you have what happens a lot of times is people don't have saddles that fit them so they they over pad or they 
they try to compensate. And there are some pads out there that do a pretty okay job with that. There are mm-hmm. pads that have shims mm-hmm. that are a short-term solution for poor saddle fit. And by short-term, I mean 75% of all horses today, modern horses, have nerve damage to their withers and shoulder area, um, which uh, will cause muscle, muscle dystrophy with long-term use. Right. And that's all because of the trees and the saddles they're using. Um, and 75% is a conservative number. So, you know, um, it's a, definitely a problem. People buy five, 10, 15, $20,000 horses and they don't give a crap about the equipment. And with time that makes for horses, they're very unhappy with because of the equipment they're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and in terms so, of, I know you build a lot of uh, working cowboy, uh, saddles, um, in, in terms of like, you know, just say competitive team roping, uh, you know, I know it's mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. different than ranch team roping or, or, or ranch right. roping or, or branding mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, do you build any, you know, competitive type saddles too, or do you? I, be- I have probably, uh, between 20 to 30 guys out there competitively roping on my saddles. I build them all the time. Um, and, uh, and there's really the principles are all exactly the same. Um, and uh but what we can do is we can make these saddles fit a little better so they don't have to cinch them down so tight Mm -hmm. and make it so uncomfortable for them because a lot of team ropers uh, because of what they're doing they have to cinch up both back and front extremely tight um and so their horses don't last long term for them they have to go to another horse uh you know maybe in five years because it's just it's worn out because of that so what we do try to do is make a better fit for them so that they don't have to use some of those methods, but the uh, principles are all the same. Uh, get, get them pretty lightweight and uh, make them fit and you can do anything off of it. Yeah. Now what, um, what's your, your base price? You just say for a rough out saddle. $2,800 is my base price on a competitive saddle, $3,500 on a working cowboy saddle. Okay. You can see I'm fishing for myself here, so <laughs> I, I'm just yeah. Uh, that that's uh, ready to ride. So if you're building like a, a working saddle, there's a little bit more that goes into that as far as materials and stuff. So those will run you about thirty five, and uh, a competitive saddle will start at twenty eight hundred dollars. Okay, and now does that include stirrups or is that without? Stirrups? Yeah, stirrups and cinches, stirrups and cinches, ready to ride on those prices. Okay. And now um, there's one thing that they do on saddles and I'm, I'm probably going to mess it up because uh, I've, I've had some saddles before that I purchased like this. When they, when they wrap the stirrups um, uh, in the bottom and have the stirrups turned out, what's that called? That's called an Idaho twist uh, that they're putting, that they should be putting in there to, to turn the stirrups. Yeah. So, cause I really like that. Is that something that, that, you know, you do on all your saddles or do people require? Absolutely. No, that's absolutely, uh, that's, and any custom saddle you buy that doesn't have that, you can know that the builder doesn't know what they're doing. Um, yeah. that's an absolute must. Yeah. Cause there's, um, there's it, nothing more, go ahead. I'm sorry. There's not, there's nothing that'll save your body and your knees from fatigue better than, uh, two things, having correct fender length and having them turned out. Those are the two things that will help you the most as far as keeping your legs fresh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's just nothing worse than, you know, you get like, get like a new saddle. Um, and the, it's like a step into a pickup, you know, when you, when it's on your horse. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. No, uh, there was a cutting, there was a guy that was a cutting horse trainer that I know. Um, and he had, uh, 
a pretty high-end saddle. It was from a production line shop that he was repping for, and uh, he was in a competition, and uh, his stirrup leather sheared right off, and uh, and that happened probably a couple months into him using the saddle. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of things we could go into about production line saddles that probably um, you don't want to get into, but I can say this that. No matter what you buy, you want to do your research and find out how they're being made and uh, in parentheses where they're being made. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've, I've, I mean, I've been there. I've had it happen to actually guy in my arena at my place one time uh, where he dallied and, and just snapped his saddle horn off, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, just, when that saddle horn came off, was it metal or was it hollow when you looked into it? It, it, was, it was actually hollow. Yeah, that's fiberglass tree. Yeah. Um, uh, with wood trees, they're, la- they're cross laminated. They're cross laminated with hardwood. Right. Um, it's virtual. It can be done, but it's a virtual impossibility to shear off a, a nice horn on, uh, on a good saddle like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, we usually, we usually guarantee those won't happen unless you're running a semi over it. Right, right, right. Now, something else. So we're talking about ergonomics for the horse and everything. And, you know, and, and you know that, I think you know that, you know, I was a chiropractor. And so, I mean, I studied extensively biomechanics, right. and kinesiology, and and um, just all those things. Now, what's your take? I mean, so we talked about the Idaho twist, but now we'll remember what that's called. And the other thing, it looks so mm-hmm. cool. So I think it looks cool when it's yeah. on the but uh, the 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 new uh, they're not really even that new. But the crooked stirrups, uh, riding in those, uh-huh. you know the ones that are angled. Uh-huh. What what are your thoughts on those? Right. Uh, my thoughts on those they're uh, a correction for a per, uh, poorly a poorly built saddle. Um, a saddle that's built correctly and your stirrup leathers are hanging um, in the right place for your body and you're sitting correctly in the saddle seat. Mm-hmm. Um, your your feet will sit flat on the stirrups. They won't need to be. Uh, they won't need to be at that angle. Um, I think they're perpetuating a problem that's already in your in your um, equipment already. Yeah, they're more comfortable. There's no doubt about it. If you have a poorly made saddle, like I said, if your saddle's built correctly, sitting on your horse correctly, um, there's absolutely no need for them. So yeah. Yeah. Another thing too, and and, and you know. With the working saddles, you know the buckaroo saddles, uh, the the saddle horns are bigger, and is I don't know if that's just particularly uh, the wade trees that are like that, or if it's just all all the working saddles are like that. And they've used like uh, you know the mule hide wrap. Um, just your thoughts mm-hmm. behind that, the difference between you know like competitive team roping where they've used you know rubber wraps yeah. and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. Well, uh, wood post horns are by nature a little bit bigger and. And you'll find um, most wade trees have sh- bigger horns in them. But also, I do a lot of crossover working saddles for guys in Texas and down south, and we'll put uh, we'll put small wood post horns, or we'll put metal horns in that are screwed to the uh, to the fork. Um, and uh, and that's a lot of preference going on there. Um, one thing about the wade saddle or any wood post saddle the reason the horns got bigger was because the cows are were bigger um and they were doing uh they were pulling a lot of big stuff around so they needed a little bit more meat there um and now it's kind of developed into a style thing too i mean you might see uh you might see a buckaroo uh with a 
shoot six inch horn. You know, I've seen right. some dinner plates that are pretty big <laughs> and, uh, those are strictly just for style. Um, there's no real functionality to something that size other than in my opinion, it goes the other way, uh, because it adds a lot of front end weight to your saddle. I'm all about, um, making a saddle, something that you like looks wise, but it should also be, um, balanced with the, uh, the overall purpose, which is the, uh, functionality of that saddle so um you know i think a lot of these things can be taken too far to where they start they start hindering the functionality of the saddle but as far as wraps go uh rubber wraps just grab you know that's why they use them because they grab um and when you're talking about competition um things are things are a little bit uh need to happen a little bit faster um mule hide wraps are really not mule hide they're 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 just regular leather that's split on both sides so if you look at a piece of uh piece of hide the the top end the grain end is is sheared off of it and then the back end is sheared off of it and what's left in the middle is your split or your mule hide split and it's very tough very durable and it provides a really nice uh, material for your your cotton ropes to slide on um so that's why a lot of buckaroos and flat hat guys and uh, people that, you know, use riatas and, and cotton ropes like them so much. Um, and they're also practicing a lot more of a slow method of, of working cows. So, you know, they don't have that need to, you know, grab something and dally it with so much speed. Right. Uh, so there's just, you know, it depends on the discipline. But I think uh, rubber, rubber racks are good in competition, but I wouldn't use them for anything else. Right. So, so I just learned something there again, all this time and I've, and I've owned saddles with quote unquote mule hide wrap. That mule hide is actually, the name is just comes from the place it comes from on the hide because it's so tough. Is that correct? Right. They, right. They basically just said, Oh boy, this is tough as a mule. So we're going to call it a mule hide. Um, (laughs) but in essence, it's, it's just cow hide that's double split. It's split off the front and the back of that of that hide is split off, leaving you with that center epidural, um, that is really, really strong and really tough and, uh, lasts and also gives you that grip that you want when your rope runs around it. Okay. Okay. So good. I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning more and more, uh, all the time here now. So, um, again, so we're talking about, you know, buckaroos and working cattle on, on the ranch and, and bigger horns for that. And then you, you mentioned too, about the cotton ropes. I, 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 I wasn't even really thinking about that. Um, but the cotton ropes have a certain amount of, uh, grip in them too, uh, more so, Absolutely. more, more so than a, you know, than a nylon or poly blend rope. So it makes a lot right. of sense. Right. And you mentioned flat hats too. I, I so love, uh, you know, the, those flat brims. My wife was raised up in uh, Eastern Oregon and a little town called Crane mm-hmm. outside of Burns. And I remember the first time I went up there and right in the basin. Yeah. yeah. A lot of them guys had, had them hats and I just thought they're so cool. They're kind of turned up in the back and then they'll slope in the front with the, you know, I think mo- pretty much a, over like a round crown on it, but right. I mean, very, right. V- very, very cool. Um, so, so basically though, you know, Josh, I mean, you know, you've been in, uh, you know, uh, uh, an entrepreneur all, all your life pretty much. And, uh, um, what's, what's the worst, your worst entrepreneurial moment, would you say? Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. Uh, I, uh, I would say my worst, uh, my worst moment was, um, 
I, I think in, in any entrepreneur's uh, career, they'll come to a point where they have too many irons in the fire and they're trying to grow all those things too quickly. Um, which, you know, there's a lot of things you learn from that, but I think, uh, I think in my low point, um, I was making money at nothing I was doing. Um, and I had too many irons in the fire. And when it came to my main passion, which was the saddles and the, and all the, the leather arts and crafts, uh, you know, I just got to the point where I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. Uh, I can't make any money at it. And, uh, and I just need to give it up. And, um, I'm a very uh, religious uh, kind of person, so you know, I just I was like, well, I'm going to pray about this and see see where it goes. But I had every intention to give it up, um, and I was on a fishing trip, hunting fishing trip, and I was just like, yeah, I think I'm going to give it up. And and I had prayed about it, and I came back, and right as I drove into my driveway, uh, I got a call from a, a packing outfitting company, um, and they ordered. Uh, a, a huge order for me, um, probably 10 times bigger than any order I'd ever had before. <laughs> um, I was like, all right, I guess we're going, we're going into the deeper. But I think as an entrepreneur, just that moment of absolute failure where your gut is torn apart and you realize that, you know, you could lose everything you've worked for. Um, I think that is the worst feeling you can have, but it's also one of the best feelings you can have because, you uh you've seen the uh you've seen the hard stuff like you know i think entrepreneurship is made to be kind of uh, uh mysticized and uh made to maybe romance a little bit but at the heart of it people that are successful entrepreneurs are the people that are the gutsiest you know they can fight through anything and like uh never give up type of attitude and uh and that's why there's that's why there's only you know a certain percentage of the human race that can actually get the job done right. because first you have to have an idea and a passion and then you have to have an indomitable will to complete that yeah and you know the, the thing that you said too is is you know you you were at the at the point where you know you're just ready to give it up but then you stopped and and you you prayed about it and which is you know just in you know I interpret that as just, you know, you just turn it over to the Lord then. And, and then right. you, look, you look what happens, you know, my wife and I say this all the time, you know, the, the Lord works in great ways and, and you come back and you got this huge order. So basically off the, you know, off the heels of, you know, your worst moment, you probably had one of your best moments with an epiphany of, absolutely you know, here, here I am, I'm, I'm literally pun intended back in the saddle and uh, yeah you know, we're just, we're riding point and we're happy, you know, so. You right. Know, yeah. And I think, I think, I think what I learned from it the most though, was that, uh, I needed to, uh, I needed to have more faith in, uh, in my creator that, uh, you know, if I felt like he put me where, where I was supposed to be, that he would be able to help me get through it. And I think there's a lot of times in my career, uh, that I have, uh, failed in that way. And every time that I do fail in that and I go back to it is when I start hitting my stride again. And that was a pretty valuable lesson for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's true, man. I mean, your strength comes from the struggle. And uh, being an entrepreneur, like you said, I think a lot of times is uh, it's kind of romanticized. And people think that, yeah, I'm just going to go out there and make all this money. And that was my biggest problem all, all the years is, is I always worked to make money. I never worked 
yeah. because of the love of what I really was doing. Uh, you know, it took me a long time to figure that out. And, but it just, uh, it's just great. I just love to, you know, talk to people like you and, and, and hear your story. And it's great for other people to hear it too. Uh, you know, you've got to, you've got to use your, your God-given talents. Don't compare like you were talking about earlier. You can't compare your work to what someone else does because you're you and, no. they're, and they're them, you know? So, so it's, uh, it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible thing to do, um, to yourself and to, uh, you know, to your, uh, your growth It's like, I'm not as good as so-and-so. Um, so, um, I, I think that uh, for me, once I, and, and to the fear, the fear of, of saying, well, I might not be approved of by somebody else. My work might be, uh, might not be what somebody else, uh, like so they might say geez you're really terrible why do you keep doing this you know it's just that fear in the back of your mind of i might not be good enough and so i'm just going to keep trying to copy somebody else right and it just it's crippling it's absolutely debilitating. yeah 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 absolutely and, and and just all the things that, that hold us back as people is, is always fear-based and even a lot of things that people do in aggression is fear-based too you know it's uh I know, I know I've been guilty of that so many times in my life uh, just because of the fear of the unknown or fear of my own insecurities or whatever. And uh, you know, it just, you got you're going to have to work through it one way or another. Cause if you don't ever learn, you're going to keep working through it the hard way. And I've, I've chose now to not do that anymore. <laughs> and I couldn't agree with that more. It's like, you know, you not only hurt yourself, but you hurt people around you and you obviously will never find success. So, you know, uh, I, I think being okay with that, that you're going to fail and you're not going to look super cool all the time and you're going to ask a lot of dumb questions and, uh, shoot, you, you know, people might even laugh, heaven forbid that, you know, and just be, be okay with that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, hey, Josh, we're getting close to the, to the end of our time here and, and just a couple things. Uh, what's your favorite cowboy movie? That's a, such a such a, a question I've pondered over uh, for the years. Um, I'm a huge fan. I grew up on every Western. I've seen every Western uh, ever made. I, I think that's a fair statement. But uh, I think uh, uh, The Searchers is probably my, my baseline Western that I think all people watching Westerns or making Westerns should watch. Uh, and then uh, I would say top three is The Searchers, uh, a movie called Conagher, and then modern modern westerns. I think that uh, Open Range was pretty close to uh, pretty close to perfection uh, as they can do these days. Yeah, you know, it's you mentioned Conagher. No one's mentioned that on the show before, but that is, I think, just one of the best movies. You know. Um, oh yeah, best one of the best ever. Yep, yeah, absolutely. And uh, what was it? Oh, doing? and. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, Quigley Down Under is probably top five too. Um, modern wise, that's probably my second one up there. It's a really great movie. If people haven't seen that, it's an awesome movie with Tom Selleck. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it probably, I don't know, at least 40, 50 times. <laughs> yeah. 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 The ending, the ending itself is worth, uh, worth the movie. Yeah. Um, and also there's a really good writing scene in there. Tom Selleck, uh, had his saddle built like the old ones with Hamley hangers. And there's a scene where he rides cross country along, uh, for quite a while and his balance and everything is, uh, 
very different from how people ride today. And it's uh, kind of a good application piece for people to study if they, if they want to know what balance looks like. That's very cool. That's very, very cool. That's neat. You picked up on that too. Yeah. Very, very great movie, man. Um, Hey, how about, how about cowboy boots? You got a special brand or a maker? Uh, you know, I, uh, I've had a bunch of different, uh, bunch of different handmade boots, uh, over the years. Um, uh, back boots, back cowboy boots is, uh, is pretty good. Um, uh, I think as far as a production line boot, I've probably worn through 10 or 15 pairs of variants. Um, um, I, I think they make probably the best production line boot that I've been able to find. And, and how about your cowboy hats? Uh, Great Basin Hat Company. I have about uh, 20 of their hats. It's uh, <laughs> not an exaggeration. I, I do have a lot. Um, and they're out of Nevada, and they're all custom-made, handmade. Um, and I actually did a podcast with the maker um, that's kind of informative for how hats are made. Uh-huh. What, what, what podcast so was that on? When, when was, what was that on? It's on, it's on the Cowboy Craft podcast. Um, oh, your podcast. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's one I started doing. Um, and it, there's an episode in there um, about hat making, and he describes how it's all done the process, uh, the materials they use, um, about an hour long. And, you know, if anyone wants to know how hats are made or where they came about or anything like that, it's a little bit informative. Yeah. So, so now that's the, what's the name of your podcast again? The Cowboy Craft Podcast. The the Cowboy Craft Podcast. And that's on iTunes, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. iTunes and SoundCloud. Okay. And now the other thing too, I'm going to mention this, um, Maybe you'll make me cut it out. I don't know. But now you were talking about uh, doing some more podcasts with uh, with Tristan. Are you guys yes, still uh, working? You still mm-hmm. Yes, on we've we, we've got some recorded and uh, we're working on getting them uh, dialed in and uploaded as we speak. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, I don't have any kind of information for you as far as where you can go, but uh, I'll send you the information on that later on. But it's kind of going to be a roundhouse conversation on uh, a bunch of things, horsemanship, the West. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about, we talked about other stuff too, just life in general and how we see it through, you know, more of a, a cowboy perspective. So we're hopefully we'll, we'll have a bunch of episodes coming out by the end of the year on that one. Very cool. And what's the name of it? You guys got a name for it yet? We don't have a name for it yet. We uh, have podcasts, but we don't have a name and we don't have a home for it yet. So that's what we're working on right now. <laughs> well, cool. Well, as soon as you get that information, you get it over to us and we'll, we'll put it out there. I'm excited to, excited to hear some of that. Well, we had, uh, we had talked, uh, we had talked about back and forth on, uh, on some names, but you know, it's, it's always difficult. I remember when I named the Cowboy Craft podcast, I, uh, I just really was skeptical and, and even with my business, I was so skeptical on what, uh, what we should call it. So, um, I think, uh, it's probably going to be called something like, uh, the cowboy conversation is what we're thinking right now. So, uh, we'll see how it goes if it's free or whatever else. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll be looking forward to that, Josh. And then I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to one of these days getting up there and, and seeing you and um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get outfitted because I, I don't have a, uh, 
Well, I don't know. I don't know how, what kind of saddle I'm going to have built yet. I'm going to figure that out, but uh, I would definitely like to have you build me one. And, uh, and, and where, where exactly are you located? Are you, what, what state are you in again? I'm in, I'm in Montana. Uh, I'm in Kyla, Montana, which is just, uh, just a little uh, north of Whitefish, Montana, almost up here by the border of Canada. Okay. And, and, and Dan, if you ever get up in these cold areas, I'll roll out the red carpet for you and uh, <laughs> we'll make that happen. Well, yeah, you, yes. Well, I don't know. I'll have to roll out the red carpet for you because I know from our discussion before that you actually have royal blood. Um, but my name does mean yeah. <laughs> battle sword. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I am I am unofficially royal, so uh, yeah, yeah. There you have it. That's that's great. Everybody heard it here first. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Well, hey Josh. Hey, I, I really appreciate your time, man, and uh, and just really enjoyed you know uh, your expertise and and uh, you telling sharing your story and uh, look forward to people being able to hear it and um, just. Well, uh, well, thank you, Dan, and I. Uh, I want to take a second and uh, acknowledge what you're doing here because uh, I've listened to a ton of these podcasts and for a guy like me that's very solitary, um, uh, it's a huge, uh, you know, I work alone a lot. So I listen to a ton of books and podcasts and um, and I just love them. So uh, any encouragement I can give you and uh, any help in any way, I'm, I'm all in on that. So uh, thank you for what you're doing and keep, uh, keep punching at it. Yeah. Hey, well, I really appreciate that, man. I really appreciate the support and, and, uh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna keep, uh, pointing them, pointing them North. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the only way. All righty, Joshua. Hey, thanks again, man. And then we'll be in touch. All right, Dan, you take care of yourself and, uh, look forward to talking to you again. You bet. Where are you cowboys and cowgirls at? Every Friday afternoon, I hitch up the trailer Saddle up old rock and ice down a cooler I drive that old back road until it ends At the roping pen We got them rusted out pickups and fancy rigs $20,000 horses, then there's my own stick Although we're all the same the minute we ride in to the roping pen Well, I ain't no play speed But I give her hell, he can never can tell Someday I just might be We'll turn a few steers and we'll tell a few lies Kick back in the saddle and philosophize Most of life's problems Yeah, we're gonna solve them Down at the roping pen Yeah, we don't do it for the money Yeah, we're always broke Just ask Clint what he paid a rope He's lost a dozen wives Half the fingers on his hands To the roping pen And it takes a little skill 
and a little love If you can talk smack, you can back it up Oh, but we're all friends No matter who wins Down at the rope and play Turn another pin of steers, tell a few more lies. Drink another beer and hypothesize most of life's problems. By God, we're gonna solve them down at the roping pen. We'll see y'all again next weekend down at the roping pen. Down at the roping.